0: This episode is brought to you by the Struggle for Meaning newsletter, a weekly newsletter in which I, Gregor Thompson, send out every Sunday for free a short article concerning embracing struggle. If you're struggling, pun intended, to be more productive, to be healthy, to achieve your dreams, perhaps you're chasing the wrong thing. A lot of us believe that we should be aiming for happiness, but that is an unwise pursuit as happiness comes and goes without any control from us. However, there is a way to be more fulfilled with life and that is to embrace struggle, to exercise, to eat healthy, to have uncomfortable conversations, to take some career risks. That's why I created a newsletter. Along with the article, I also provide tips, strategies and recommendations to help along the way. So to sign up for free, go to gregorthompson.com, that's G-R-E-G-O-R-T-H-O-M-S-O-N.com, confirm your subscription, and make sure you check your spam folder for your welcome newsletter, and add me to your contacts to continue to receive this invaluable content in your inbox every week. And that's it. You're on your way to struggling more, being more productive, healthy, and motivated. To stay up to date with everything concerning the In Context podcast, the Struggle for Meaning newsletter, and all of my other work, follow my social media. My Instagram is gregorthompsonmedia, all one word. My Facebook is @gregor_thompson_journalist, journalist And you can watch the podcast on YouTube by subscribing to my channel, which is @gregor_thompson_all_one_word. You can also find all of my work, including articles and the podcast, on my website, which is gregorthompson.com. For this episode, I spoke about domestic violence, solutions to domestic violence and gender with Rachel Horman-Brown, who is a solicitor and the head of the Domestic Violence and Forced Marriage Department at Watson Ramsbottom Solicitors. I realise this is not the cheeriest of subjects, but it is one of the most important. So I urge everyone to listen to the whole conversation as I'm sure there'll be something that you'll take away from it. If you are a victim of domestic violence or abuse and need to access help, I've linked some charities below who can help. Please don't try to rationalize harmful behavior. Domestic violence must never be tolerated. So here's my conversation with Rachel Horman-Brown. So Rachel, what is your profession and how did you get into it?
1: Um, So I'm a solicitor. Um, I specialise in family law and in particular um, within family law, I specialise in domestic abuse and stalking cases. So the vast majority of my cases will have coercive control or domestic abuse or stalking as some kind of element to it, Um, often in relation to disputes between parents about the children, sometimes about protective orders, etc. How did I get into it? Um, I I suppose in a way I fell into it really I'd always been interested in um, feminism and um, domestic abuse when I was at university I did my dissertation about um, how the law was was failing um, victims of domestic abuse I never really thought that I would be able to specialise in that as a career though Um, And then when I joined um, the firm that I'm now a director at, um, I just started to um, obviously find victims um, coming to see me as clients and really, I suppose, realised that they they were being failed still by the system, that, that solicitors didn't seem to understand how dangerous domestic abuse was particularly if it was non-physical domestic abuse, I think there's still a lack of understanding around that. And I suppose that through my interest in that area, and you know I wanted to to do more for victims and fight their corner, I was suddenly bombarded with with a lot of work. And I ended up setting up a whole department um, to deal with that. There's now about 30 of us. Um, that just deal in in these kind of cases, but it, it literally started from nothing. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's as much as it is impressive that you started this whole department. It's almost quite depressing that there needs yeah. to be a department specialising in that. It shows how yeah. big the problem is.
1: Absolutely, I always say that that really victims shouldn't need um, to come and see me or or my team. Um, you know, that the police should be doing more so that victims don't have to come and get protective orders, um, and victims shouldn't have to spend years fighting um, you know perpetrators of domestic abuse through the family courts. They're still being um, attacked really, and perpetrators will use the family court system to continue that abuse after separation, unfortunately. So it would be ideal if our department wasn't needed.
0: Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that you had an interest in feminism. How do you view feminism? Because there's a lot of dispute around that.
1: I think feminism obviously is putting women first um, and, you know, acknowledging that women, um, you know, we're, we're still not equal. We're a long way from that. Um, and I think, you know, just because we have, you know, perhaps the Equal Pay Act, et cetera, people tend to think that the struggle is over. But I really don't see that um, in terms of um, my work, even. I see it on a daily basis that women are often coming off um, second on a regular basis. If you look at, you know, divorces, et cetera, so often, women will walk away without making a financial claim against their their husband, for out of fear. Basically, they just will say, "I'm glad to get out with my life. I'm glad to get out with the children. There's no way I want to risk stirring that up and provoking my my husband into into coming for me." Um, so they will walk away, you know, from thousands and thousands of pounds on a regular basis Um, and you know whilst I do have male victims um, as clients as well I don't see the same fear. I think it's a very different scenario um, for men. I'm not saying that they're never victims but I don't think that they actually fear for their lives. I've never met um, a male client that has felt like that.
0: Why why do you think that this is considerably a male problem, is it? Do you think it's just that men generally will resort to violence more than women?
1: I think, you know, this, this is a problem that's been around for thousands and thousands of years, isn't it? It's not something that's recent. Um, You know, I do think that men tend to be more aggressive than than women, Um, certainly they are physically stronger than than women, so they're able to exert, you know, brute force onto a woman. And we live in a misogynistic society. There's no two ways about that, in my view. Um, And I think even women um, fall foul of that. And, you know, I talk about quite often the problem with the police and, and what, you know, how misogynistic the police force is as a culture Um, you know I'm not the only person to to say that obviously but I find that even the female police officers will end up um, getting involved in that because it's almost as though that's the only way to survive within that organisation is to is to copy the culture and and to you know to to follow suit and if you don't then you're never going to get on very well um, within that and I, I remember myself as a a trainee solicitor when I started at, at the company that um, like I say I'm still with I started as a trainee I'm now a director but when I first started there um, you know th- there weren't really many women um, in, in management positions within the organisation and I remember thinking well if I want to get on in this organisation I'm going to have to kind of act like one of the blokes to some extent and I remember starting to take golf lessons etc so that I would be able to go on the golf course with, with the male partners um, it, and I honestly felt that that was the only way that I would be able to get on and I remember myself uh, at some points almost, you know, not acting like a man, that, that would be taking it too far, but I suppose mimicking the type of um, culture and and way of working that, that the male solicitors did and it was only... Um, you know a while after that i realized what was happening i just thought actually you don't need to do it like that you can do it as a woman and still be like a woman and still be successful unfortunately you know it worked out okay for me but you know it did affect me um and and i know that it affects lots and lots of other women in different professions
0: and i just want to pay devil's advocate a bit and just maybe if i if i if a male was to maybe respond to what you're saying and, and maybe say that, that feminism maybe should be about um, e- um equality and everyone should be treated equal and it shouldn't be women first, it should be everyone first. So maybe it's like the same sort of argument that um, came up with the Black Lives Matter protests where people would say mm. all matter. What would you say, what would you say to that as a response?
1: Well, I think that, you know, you fight your fight and let the feminists fight their fight. Um, You know, it's like saying, well, you shouldn't do that sponsored run for breast cancer because what about all the other cancers? Um, And there is a real problem with how women are treated in society. You know, that's not to say that men don't have any issues um, which affect them. Of course they do. And and there's nothing to stop um, men setting up their own battles in re- in respect of that and I actually think that you know the whole thing of the the patriarchy and a misogynistic society actually damages men as well um so I do think that men would be better off if if that wasn't happening and you know it doesn't make um an ideal scenario for men to live within that but I don't think you can criticize somebody for seeing a massive inequality that affects 50 percent of the population and then complain that they're not including men because i think men start um from a much more powerful position but like i say that's not to say that that they don't have um things that that they face that that need to improve as well
0: i think um, some good examples to me of um male feminists i'm going to be doing a a second part to this episode this sort of subject and Mm. um i don't know if you've heard of positive news they're a magazine they send out quarterly it's just uh, uplifting stories basically challenging the main narrative and the cover story of the last one was men standing up against domestic violence against women and it was Mm. just four profiles of different men and one of them he runs an organization called beyond equality and they go to schools and to speak Mm -hmm. with groups of boys and kind of um, parse out their perceptions about gender and challenge them a bit and just make sure yeah. try to ensure that these boys aren't going to grow up to have these horrible misconceptions. So I think that's a great example of men doing what they can yeah. to, um, to pu- push the feminism movement forward.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think that's really important um and and that's you know important that men do that and and you know sometimes I think well domestic abuse in a way isn't a women's problem it's a men's problem more more than a women's problem because you know it's men that need to change and again I do realize that you know it's not necessarily as easy as people think that we are brought up in a society and even if you try your best not to be a certain way or to try and view everybody equally, we're still tainted with the culture that, that we're brought up in. So, so it isn't easy. And there's, you know, lots and lots of areas um, in which that can change. But I do think that men certainly need to do that. And, you know, young boys need to see positive male, male role models and realise that there is another way. Mm.
0: You've spoken before about the fact that less, is it less than 1% of rape cases? Does mm-hmm. it go to trial or get prosecuted?
1: Um, less than 1% go to trial.
0: Right. Um, and why is that? What What's so broken in the system?
1: <sighs> Gosh, um, <laughs> all of it, really. Right. Um, you know, and again, this is, it does go quite deep, I think. Um, There are problems with how the police respond to it, Um, there are problems with how the CPS then deal with that and um, it's been looked at previously that the CPS had an artificially high bar in respect of bringing bringing charges forward. you know, there are problems in the whole system um, in terms of the ordeal that a woman gets put through in terms of the trial itself. And I think that, you know, also problems in society in the way we see it. And I think all of that means that lots of women probably don't even report it um, in the first place. I know lots of women that work within the criminal justice system who will say... I wouldn't report a rape if that happened to me because I wouldn't want to go through what I see happening on a daily basis. It's, you know, it's um, re-victimising. It's traumatic in itself. And, you know, at the moment you could be waiting for two years or more for that process to be finished. Um, So I think, you know, all of that um, means that it's a surprise that anybody even reports it really. Um, but there are lots of myths again within our our own culture about what what a a real rape victim should look like and how they should act, etc. You know, you can't be drunk, you can't be wearing something that that is seen as provocative, etc. And I think you know, there's still too much focus on the victim and what they did, what they said, how they acted, and I think that's really unfair. Um, the focus should just be on the rapist. Um, you know, there's only one thing that causes rape, and that's that's the rapist. But I think within society, people still focus on 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 the victim to the point where often victims themselves don't realise they are victims because they will say, "Well, yeah, but I went out, I was drunk, it's my fault." And I hear that from from clients that will talk about what's happened to them or clients will say if I ask them you know has your husband ever raped you they'll say no if if you then say well has he ever forced himself on you or made you do anything that sexually that that you didn't want to do then often they'll say yes and really there's no distinction between those two things but they believe that often that you can't be raped by your husband um, obviously that that um, situation changed in, in the mid 90s. Um, but, you know, still, I think predominantly a lot of women still think that really you can't be raped by your husband. And yes, you might not want to have sex, but you kind of have to. And that's just how it is. Um, So I think all of these things really make it very difficult for women to come forward. And, you know, I'm quite sure that all of these kind of stereotypes and myths play into, um, you know, all the decisions that that are made by everyone within that criminal justice system, be be it the police Um, the CPS, um, juries, you know, I'm quite sure that, that, you know, all of this impacts on the minds of of juries and and whether or not they think the victim has acted like a real victim should, etc. So, yeah, all of that. Um, And like I say, I'm not sure I would report um, a rape either, to be honest. I just think the system is is quite barbaric. Do you
0: have you found any common themes in the domestic violence cases that you work on? Is there any reasons for domestic violence that crop up more often than others?
1: Um, I think it's very difficult. Like I say, I think there are lots and lots of reasons. Um, the biggest factor, obviously, is that predominantly this is a, a this is a, an issue of um male violence against women like I say not that's not to say it never happens the other way um but you know the vast majority of the significant cases I would say uh, that I've come across in my career have been male violence against women I think that the thing that I see most commonly and almost the essence of of what domestic abuse is, is is coercive control. And I think that this is something that is fairly new in terms of how people um, talk about domestic abuse. A few years ago, you know, it didn't really exist. It wasn't a criminal offence like like it is now. Um, And I think that, you know, this is what underlies all of the... um, situations of domestic abuse particularly um that 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 I've come across in my career I would say it's you know it's what it's what makes women um unable to leave sometimes it it's it it explains the fear um and you know why why they don't leave why they do um what they're basically being told to do even without physical violence it doesn't need to get physical um and it's kind of the micromanagement of every aspect of um a woman's life and the perpetrator will set out to psychologically terrorize the the victim and they can do that um in ways that individually might seem insignificant but when you put them all together and you imagine living that Every day, day in day out, um, then you know you you just only then can you understand how that would psychologically wear you down and and break you.
0: Mm. Going back to what you were saying before about putting the blame on the victim, I think that made me think of the Sarah Ever Sarah Everard case, mm-hmm. in which I saw a lot of the narrative and some of it coming from the police was telling women not to to walk home on their own or yeah. walking home in the dark or not wear a short skirt or yeah. ask a police officer for his badge and that just yeah. seems to be exactly what it is. It's like there wasn't anything wrong with what happened with what, what whoever done what they did to Sarah Everard with that, yeah. death, that man. It was it was on her. That was what they yeah. were intentionally saying. Um, yeah. It was horrible.
1: Yeah and I think you know that that is very very common. Um, you know we we do as a society blame women for things that things that happen to them and until we change that focus and focus on on the perpetrator it almost lets the perpetrator off with well they can't help themselves you know that's just what you know it's almost like saying that's what men do and I think that's unfair to men as well to to say that you know men can't help themselves in these situations so if you get drunk and wear a short skirt you're going to get raped and actually you might get murdered as well you know I'm quite sure most men are not like that um so you know like I say I think by changing this narrative it 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 would benefit men as well as women but you know, this still happens every day. I, I speak to clients that will say, well, I've been told that I'm being stalked. So I've been told that I need to change the way I go to work. I need to perhaps think about moving house. Um, I need to think about changing my name. I've been told that because I'm being stalked on Twitter, I've got to come off Twitter. Um, I've got to close my Instagram account, etc. Well, why should you have to do that as a victim? All that does is close down your life and you know restrict um your freedoms when really what we should be doing is again folks, you know on the perpetrator and it just seems that you know this is what the police will tell victims um, and it's almost like an excuse not to not to intervene not to take a statement not to bring charges um, the victim has just got to ensure that it doesn't happen again by changing her behaviour. And that's wrong. And it leaves that perpetrator out there, um, possibly to move on to another victim or actually to uh, increase their behaviour towards the victim. Because often, um, you know, I, I'm also the chair of Paladin, which is the National Stalking Advocacy Service, And, you know, we've been saying for years that this is really dangerous advice that the police give about this. And if you tell a victim, well, just change your telephone number, um, then that often actually escalates the the behaviour of the perpetrator and puts the victim at more risk. Because when we look at stalking, we're looking at somebody who is obsessed and fixated on the victim. So do you really think that by changing your mobile telephone number, the perpetrator is going to say okay well that's it that's the end of the line isn't it all they're going to do is change their behavior and perhaps they're going to have to start doing things more directly so maybe they're going to have to start turning up at your place of work for you to notice them because they can't leave that message on your answer phone or they can't send that text message to you so actually that advice um, is potentially putting women at more risk so again you know what what the police need to do is stop all that focus on what has the victim done before what can the victim do going forward and just deal with the behavior um and, and bring charges we don't see this in in other crimes like burglary etc um you know and it, it just seems to be crimes that disproportionately affect women that that are treated in this way domestic abuse Stalking, sexual offences, rape, uh, coercive control—all of those offences are are ones that predominantly affect women, and we seem to treat them very, very differently to any other crime.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's li- like those cases like predominantly affect women as the victims, but they also like the majority of those cases, the perpetrators are men. So it's yeah. like this two thing, it's two different things there. It's, it's maybe the reason that they're not tried is because it's men that are being tried, and it's yeah. women who. Are-
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I always um, talk about, again, this has all come from, from what victims tell me, but in, in, in far too many cases, I won't say every case I deal with, but the majority of cases, when victims do report these crimes to the police, very often they're met with an attitude of, of disbelief. So. Client, the clients will come to me as a solicitor and then pay me thousands of pounds that they should never have to pay for me to help them put together evidence to go back to the police with to prove what's happening to them. Well, that's the job of the police to investigate um crimes, it's what they do. You know, if you report a burglary, you'll have the scenes of crimes, band come round, they'll be taking fingerprints, etc. Um, you know, where 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 possible. But they don't do that in in cases of stalking and, and domestic abuse. Um, in too many cases, it's, like I say, you have to almost convince the police that you're not lying before they'll even take a statement. And that's just wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. What impact did the pandemic have on domestic violence cases? I know stalking domestic violence went, like, the cases went up massively. Yeah. Which, like a lot of people, were surprised about. But when you actually think about it, it was a lockdown. People were literally trapped yeah. in circumstances with the perpetrator.
1: Yeah, and even where they'd separated, um, victims—you know—victims couldn't go to work. They couldn't access help, so they felt, you know, they were particularly vulnerable. And perpetrators knew that. They knew where the victim was going to be. Um, you know, for the vast majority of the time. Also, perhaps the perpetrator maybe wasn't working, maybe been furloughed and suddenly had all this time on his hands. And again, if you're dealing with somebody who's obsessed and fixated, if you suddenly give that person another six hours to their day, well, obviously they're going to use those six hours to obsess about about the victim. So I think all of those things combined um, And I know a a lot of women felt as though they couldn't even report it to the police at that time. A lot lot of them would say, well, I didn't want to waste the time because that's how they feel when they report. But particularly when the pandemic started, I think that they felt that what was happening to them wasn't important enough, Um, you know, and that the police had all of these other things to do when the reality wasn't actually like that. I mean, I've spoken to police officers that said, when the pandemic struck, really, we didn't have that much to do, um, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of how, how they would normally be being contacted by the public. Um, but certainly the number of incidents just went through the roof. And to be honest, it's not really gone down a great deal in my experience um, in terms of the number of calls that that, that we are getting. And, you know, all of this is made worse by the waiting um you know of the court system etc not just the criminal court system but the family court system as well there's a huge backlog in terms of cases um which has meant that you know that they're taking much much longer to to resolve which again is is much more stressful for for victims
0: mm. i think a, con- a conversation i kept on see- seeing in a narrative following the me too movement was men saying this means that we can't flirt with women we can't ask to buy a woman a drink and um, mm-hmm. and well for, for me i think i think one of the questions a lot of people were asking was where's where's the line where 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 can we draw the line to where women feel safe and where we can still have a uh, male female relationships and mm-hmm. um, and i think a big one for me in, in like these situations where in bars or clubs, is that if if a man was to ask a woman to buy her a drink and she was to say no, that's the end of the conversation. Yeah, I think a lot of these things that men men's egos can be so fragile and small is that they can't yeah. take that rejection. Yeah, and so they keep pushing it. And I think a lot of a lot of these cases that you're speaking about, what we're dealing with is unhealthy and weak, fragile men. I think yeah. we always speak about men being physically more powerful, but the yeah. fact that they have to resort to these sorts of horrible acts um, is weak-minded. Um, so, I suppose my question is like, where, where, where do you think the the line is for that sort of behaviour? Is is that is that acceptable behaviour in bars, for example, to ask a woman to buy a drink or to try and flirt, stuff like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, sometimes I. I don't even believe half of the time when I hear men say, oh, we don't know if we're allowed to do this or that. I just think, really? Mm. Um, you know, I think most men um, understand the difference between flirting um, and, you know, offering to buy somebody a drink. They know where the line is um, and where that then borders into harassment and aggression. And I've seen this many many times that you know if you do say no thank you I don't want a drink or whatever some men become quite aggressive about that and you know will start to be verbally abusive to the woman um, and and offended by it and I just think well there's absolutely no need you know for, for that to happen um, and I think most men are absolutely aware of where the line is. Um, and they choose to cross it, and and by saying, you know, well, we're not sure what what we can do and what we can't do. I just, I don't believe it. I think it's very clear, and it's about having respect for somebody. That's all, and it's about consent. Um, and if you don't understand that, then you probably shouldn't be leaving the house.
0: Mm. I think it's staying on that theme. Um, another thing that a lot of men do is catcalling women, and. I found my, my partner said something very interesting where if she's walking herself, she'll get mm. catcalled a lot. Like she'll like quite a few times. She's like came back and said like, builder's cat called me. And yeah. like, I, I hate it. Um, and then, but there's never been a time when I've been with her walking down the road and uh, someone's cat called yeah. her. And what she said about that, which I just thought was great was that it's because they respect you mm. enough to do that. They don't respect yeah. me enough not to do that. And that's, yeah. It's so, like, poignant to the
1: the whole yeah. situation. Yeah, and I think it's, it's quite a recent conversation that we've started to have about things like that. Um, you know, people will say, well, most people will agree that domestic abuse, for example, um, and violence against women is, is wrong. But, you know, it doesn't come from nowhere. Um, and I think that all of these smaller things, like, you know, the catcalling, et cetera, they do have an impact on women and not just an impact on women as in, you know, perhaps they don't feel very safe walking down the road, et cetera, but it also makes men feel that that's okay and, and other men to think that, well, yeah, that that is okay. That's how you, you can um, talk to women. Um, you know, they aren't really our equals. They are there for our entertainment. And I think it's only very recent that we've had, that conversation and these are all the smaller things that that we need to change um and actually when you look at it as well you know we, we always talk about builders in this in this respect it could be anyone but quite often they're doing that to 13 and 14 year old girls as well and they think that that's okay as well and again it's only very recently that I think people have started to discuss it and 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 started to accept that really it's 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 not good enough and we need to change these small things but that doesn't mean that we're living in a society where you aren't allowed to think that somebody's attractive or ask them out it's just about having respect you know for women and I I know a a male friend of mine said it was only recently when I thought about walking home um, and a woman kind of walking home from the pub on her own or whatever and being told that you know virtually every woman you speak to in that situation will have some kind of plan in her head right if I get approached by somebody this is what I'm going to do it's either you know you've got your keys you know in your fist kind of thing as some ridiculous kind of weapon or right I've got my mobile here I'm going to do this I'm going to do that and you're constantly looking at right I can go there I can do this and men rarely think like that I remember my male friend saying I have never thought about anything like that about when I've been walking home from the pub it's never crossed my mind and I think sometimes men don't realize the impact that all of those smaller things like cat calling etc when all of this is happening um, at the same time as women opening the newspaper, and it being somewhere on page twenty, a tiny little piece that a woman, another woman's been murdered. You know, it doesn't even make the front pages. It's so common. Um, all of this, I think, plays into that 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 culture of fear. So it's about acknowledging the impact that that behaviour has has on women and. Unless we tackle the small things, then we're never gonna have a chance with the bigger ones. Mm-hmm.
0: A, f- a few things came to my mind there when you were speaking there. Um, for like for for one, when, when say if like if I'm walking home in the dark or something like that, like the only time that I would feel um that sort of maybe pressure or danger is if another group of males are walking yeah. towards me and it's in a dark street. But my worry is never anything to do with sexual assault and it's never yeah. that I'm going to be murdered it's yeah. like the worst case scenario I'm going to get beat up I'm going to get robbed
1: yeah um, yeah
0: another another experience I've had that I think we should maybe speak about is the um, increase in spiking cases mm-hmm. um, when I went on my first kind of boys holiday and the only boys holiday I ever went on because I it wasn't it, well I enjoyed it but I would never do something like that again it's it's, yeah. it's not a scene but um the first night we went out, I am—I um, was spiked and I ended up like sprawled across the street, woke mm-hmm. up at seven o'clock in the morning, couldn't remember anything. I was still yeah. almost hallucinating. And I managed to get back to my hotel. worst The worst thing that happened to me is my money was gone. And I remember yeah. thinking years later that, thank God, I am a man. Yeah. If I was a female, that would have been a hundred times worse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm going on a massive tangent here, but another um, experience I had a couple of weeks ago, actually, I was, I was walking home um, on a rainy night. I had, I had a big black coat on and my hood up and a woman approached me saying, um, do you mind if I walk with you? There's just a big group of men behind me um, yeah. just up to the like, busy street ahead. I was like, yeah, that's fine. I'm like walked up and I chatted to her and then made sure she got to the bus stop. But as I was walking home, I did think what a horrible predicament she's in because she yeah. doesn't know who I am, I'm just yeah. a man with my hood up, so I could have been anyone, I could have yeah, been yeah, there, so she almost had to choose, do I, do I, like, risk it and walk home myself with this big group of men behind me, or do yeah. I approach this man by himself with his hood up? Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly, and I think this is something that women face on a daily basis, and sometimes we don't even realise we're doing that, um, and again, I think, the Me Too movement has, I think, sparked this discussion, um, and you know, a lot, a lot of female friends will say, "I do that, I do it all the time, and I didn't really think about why I do it." And it's only now, and it's almost just like I have to say that it's unconscious. Almost, we are conditioned from a very, very young age to be wary of men. Um, and certain situations and you know there are very good reasons for that unfortunately and yes not all men are like that obviously thankfully but we don't know which ones are and which ones um, aren't so in some ways the safest way you can kind of um, conduct your life is, is to assume that they all potentially are and it's only until you know you get to know somebody, and you know you you can let your guard down to, to some extent. And it's a terrible way um, of being. And I'm sure, like I say, that that men decent men don't want women to live like that either. And it would be much better um, if we didn't. But this is why you know I, I do think it's so important that that women are permitted to have um single sex spaces etc so that you know they have that place where they know they're not gonna um be exposed to 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 male-bodied people that that make them feel uncomfortable and potentially pose a a, a risk to them like I say we don't know which ones are and which ones aren't so you know the only way is, is to almost assume that 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 everybody poses a risk, but this is just something that, as a woman, you have to learn to deal with, and you're exposed to it from a very, very young age.
0: Mm. I think that's maybe why you're seeing a lot of. I think you see a lot of women going to gay bars, and you also see some men going to gay bars. I I know Daniel Craig was in the news fairly recently, saying Mm. that he he goes to gay bars a lot because he there's no chance of him um, getting into any Sort of violence there. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about um, the media and how mm-hmm. how that's a part. Um, I think an, an interesting cliche I, I saw for films is that it's okay for men to not take no for an answer. That's romantic in films. Mm-hmm. But women do that; they're the crazy one for doing that. Yeah, they're the yeah. The, the weird one. Um, so I think that that's one thing that we see a lot in the media. Um, and another thing is. I think pornography has a massive impact on this. I think Mm -hmm. young boys are being exposed to um, pornography from an extremely young age without any restrictions and they're not getting the sexual education that they should get. Um, And I think 90% of pornography is from a male gaze, male-dominated, and a lot of it is abuse. And I think males will grow up to expect that from women and when they don't get that, that's maybe when they'll get aggressive and violent. Mm. Um, a great idea, I saw For Sex Education, I think when a school in the US was doing it, is they were showing young boys pornography and then pointing out where the problems were with it and what they yeah. shouldn't be expecting. Because people will say we should shield um, young boys from pornography, but that's not going to stop them from watching pornography. Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I agree with all of that, really. Um, I think, again, when we go back to, you know, why do we live in a society where domestic abuse is so prevalent? things like the media, um, films, um, even music, I think all of those things have an impact on women and on men in different ways. And I think we still romanticise abuse of women, um, you know, not just within pornography, but that's obviously, you know, a big theme within pornography. But, you know, in the films, like you say, that it, it it's seen as romantic for a man to... Relentlessly pursue a woman and don't take no for an answer, and you keep fighting for her. When actually, what we're seeing there is stalking. Mm. Um, you know, it's unwanted attention. Um, you know, when a man forces himself on a woman in a film, and then eventually the woman relents and they fall in love, and all of that nonsense. <laughs> you know, none of that helps men or women. Um, but I think again, it, it's only fairly recently that we've started to, to perhaps see that um for, for what it is, but we we still see it too too regularly. Um and once your eyes open to these kind of things, you can't unsee it. So you see it in films, you switch on the radio and you start listening to the lyrics of, you know, some of the music and you just think this is so derogatory, it's so stereotyped. this is really unhelpful. Um yeah, you know, I I think it's very, very difficult for young people growing up now with the pressures that they have on them from social media etc and you know the availability of of pornography you know it's very difficult to to avoid it um and, and what we are seeing I think is often quite abusive as you say it's unrealistic isn't it that's not how you know most people have sex but that's how they think that sexual relations you know should be um so, you know, we're setting them up to fail from from day one. And so much pornography is actually, you know, quite, well, a lot of it is very violent towards women. Um, and again, I think it's very difficult for boys growing up to, to realise that, you know, that, that isn't a healthy um, relationship. That's not how women want to be treated when everything they see online says different. So I agree that you can't stop children seeing this it's all around them um so you know th- they do need to be educated about healthy relationships in every aspect of it um you know there is again it's always women that end up on these courses of healthy relationships there's something called the freedom program which um, lots of women who have been through abusive relationships are expected to attend if they've got social services involved etc if they've got children and they're expected to go on these courses to learn about not just what an unhealthy relationship is because that's what they've been living in but actually comparing that to what a healthy relationship looks like because sometimes they've never seen that they might have grown up in a house where their parents were in a very abusive relationship as well Um, so they're not actually aware of what a respectful relationship looks like and I think the same is probably true in terms of sex and pornography that that you know we need to have these conversations with, with with young people and not be embarrassed about it and I think that we get embarrassed about it as much as they do and that's why we don't want to have the conversation with them but until we do then you know we're setting both sexes up to fail massively.
0: I think a lot at some conversations I've seen men have been saying that women want men to take control and women want men to be dominant Um, and of course course it's not true but I think my response to that is usually that um, women want competence in a partner Um, and they don't dominance and if a woman, yeah. a woman wants to dominate a man or if a man wants to dominate a woman then there's maybe some underlying issues there and that's not yeah. healthy either party I think there should be equal levels of respect and men and women should want competence in a partner and that's not anything to do with gender that's just what a healthy relationship is.
1: Yeah absolutely I, you know I totally agree with that Um you know and strength doesn't mean aggression either does it in a, in a part <laughs>
0: aggression means weakness.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I I totally agree. But again, I think there's an element of women, you know, some some women think that this is how they should behave, that they should behave um, in a subordinate manner because that's what men want. So maybe we're all going around thinking, well, they want this and this is how I'm supposed to act. And the other party is also thinking similar and neither are getting what they need from a relationship um, on occasion, because of that, um, so I think you know it, it's about you know being healthy and having having these conversations about what relationships are like, and re- having respect for the other person is is the key to it, isn't it? Mm.
0: I think we, we we could see that in the the whole Will Smith thing in the media now, where people were saying like Will Smith was like strong for getting up there and standing mm. up for women. Um, but in my mind, I was like, Chris Rock was a strong one there. I mean, he was the one yeah. who stood there, he took it, he did not revert, he didn't go down to his level. Will yeah. Smith showed massive weakness there, and he's paying for it.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it, it it was very ugly, wasn't it? And it did make me think, well, you know, if somebody's prepared to act like that in front of all of those people, mm-hmm. um, you know, then... What's happening behind the scenes, or or in other circumstances when you know the whole world isn't watching? So, um, you know, aggression. There's never any justification for it, um, and you know, and I think most people, hopefully, would would um, agree that that was unacceptable when they think about exactly. it.
0: Mm. I think it sparked a conversation between me and my partner, where my partner said, "If you ever did anything like that, I would be utterly embarrassed, and I would." walk yeah. Um, yeah. And what I said is that um, there's really, there's not much of a reason for me to stand up for you because you sh- you're capable of standing up for yourself. I think this yeah. whole idea that men need to stand up for their women is implying that women can't stand up for themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, what it's actually about is that he felt disrespected by, it wasn't really about her at all. Um, and I think often in those situations perhaps men will blame it on well I was protecting the woman I was being chivalrous or whatever but actually it's about them feeling that their ego was being dented by another man and therefore you know he he's going to react with aggression in relation to that um but I don't think it really had anything to do with her
0: do you think is there any situation where it's acceptable for a man to hit a woman no do you think it's ever acceptable for a woman to hit a man
1: no I don't think there's um any you know uh, violence is unacceptable the only um, the only situation where I think it's again n- not ideal but you can understand it to some extent is in situations where somebody has been victimized continually and they then end up snapping and retaliating I think that can happen and I'm quite sure that none of the people that have done that would say you know I would want to do that again um you know if we look at the case of Sally Challen who was convicted of um murdering her husband um she had actually suffered years and years and years of humiliation and coercive control. And in the end, she snapped. But she would still say it was unacceptable what I did. You know, at no stage has she tried to say, you know, he got what was coming to him, he deserved it. You know, she was always maintained that, that, that what she did was wrong. But it's about, I suppose, understanding how somebody is pushed into that situation where, you know, th- th- they're unable almost to control their actions because of the abuse of somebody else. But it's never the right thing to do.
0: Mm. I think um, it was her son that was in the positive news um, article as well. because um, David campaigned Callen. For a few years, well, I think it was about 10 years, actually, to
1: yeah.
0: have her released. And he still campaigns now because so many yeah. women came out.
1: Yeah, he's, he's done such fantastic work and he's such a great male um, role model. He really is. Um, And again, he's very honest. He was on Twitter recently talking about, you know, how all of that has impacted on him and his mental health Um, Mm. because, you know, he's had to, I suppose, again, feel as though he has to be the strong one for his mom. And he's led that campaign um, for so long um, but he is a fantastic role model for 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 other men and um, you know young young people generally.
0: One thing I wanted to get your opinion of just because um, just because of your profession, um, someone I had on two episodes ago was a philosopher called Greg Caruso. Mm-hmm. Um, he I share his view, and um, he believes that there is no such thing as free will that um, we shouldn't be blaming anyone for anything, and we shouldn't be praising anyone for anything. Um, Basically, we have no control over our actions because we have no control over so many different things prior to us um, carrying Mm -hmm. out action. Um, And so his his idea for reforming the penal system is that's what he calls the quarantine model, where he attributes that to, if, if we went to a different country and contracted Ebola, the government would quarantine you away for the safety of everyone else in society mm-hmm. and he believes that's what we should do with anyone that commits a dangerous offence. We should be quarantining them away from society but not mm-hmm. actually punishing them. What do, what's your thoughts on that? Oh,
1: that's uh, <laughs> quite, quite a big area isn't it? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure about the no um, free will argument really. I do think we all make choices on a daily basis. I think some choices are harder for some people to make because of their upbringing, et cetera, and what they've been exposed to, you know, a bit like we, we talked about Sally Challen, you know, I'm sure she didn't want to choose to do that. Um, but the circumstances of her life had, had, had led her to, to that place. But I think, you know, generally speaking, we can choose to walk away or not, Um But I do think it's much more difficult for some people um, to exercise that free will. Um, So so I've I've, um, forgotten the last part of the... uh, Oh, you were talking about quarantining, weren't you? Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's helpful to punish and make prison into some kind of really unpleasant experience for the prisoner, because I think that... That potentially leads to a more dangerous person being released into society um, so yeah I, I don't think we should be um you know torturing people in prison for sure, I think the quarantine I would call it protection rather than quarantine that they are removed from society i suppose to mean that they can't continue to to repeat those um, the, those criminal acts but it almost leads to the point where you could say that if you're saying there's no free will, actually, you could take these people out before they do anything, you know, and you don't need to wait until they've actually committed this act that you say they were, you know, um, that they were always going to commit because of their life, that why don't you take them out before the act? You know, you, you, you could go that far with it, can't you? But Obviously, that's not how our our system works. Um, But I do think that we can often see some of these patterns emerging and you can see sometimes a perpetrator, um, you know, committing acts that are only going one way in terms of seriousness. And sometimes we don't deal with those smaller acts quickly enough. I mean, look at, you know, Wayne Cousins the police officer that murdered Sarah Everard, you know, he didn't suddenly just have this issue and, you know, go out and, and rape and murder Sarah Everard. There were loads of red flags about his behaviour beforehand, some of which were also criminal, you know, the exposing himself and all of that. And again, I think these type of things are not taken very seriously, And it's almost, well, you know, he did that, he was just having a joke. it's what blokes do, and all of that kind of thing. Um, You know, he was referred to at work as the rapist, and that, you know, all of those things that were really leading to the situation that he ended up in. Nobody should have been surprised, really. So you know, should we be waiting for that to happen or should we be trying to intervene earlier down the road? And I think we do need to intervene earlier. Um, you know, I'm not suggesting that people should be arrested for, you know, their thoughts, but I think that once it starts to spill out into the way they act, um, then I think we just need to take those small incidents much more seriously because they can be indicators of um, much more serious behaviour further down. It's a little bit like stalking. You know, on average, a woman will have experienced over 100 incidents of stalking before she ever picks the phone up to the police. So, you know, the police need to take that really seriously at day one. Um, And when we look at most domestic homicides, we'll have had in the run-up to that an element of stalking before the murder happens so you know if we're serious about tackling you know murder rape we need to deal with the less serious incidents much more seriously in my view and I think things like stalking uh, which obviously involves obsession and, and fixation things like you know those lower grade sexual offenses like exposing yourself well we need to take that much more seriously, I think, because what kind of person does that and what what potentially will that lead to?
0: Mm. I think that, like, what you're saying about like intervening, I think there's ways to intervene in those sorts of cases. And there's also preventative measures more broadly that can be taken like what's mm. happening in these schools. I was speaking about bringing up boys. Yeah. Time, because. Um, with surrounding that free will conversation to me these men that um lead up to to carrying out these horrible atrocities they're generally i would say in their past there is indicators that they will be that's the type of man that would carry that out Um, and it could even be abuse from on to them as children it could be the way their parents were it could be the way their friends were it could be um, any number of things, and that's why I think like there is preventative measures we can take broadly as a society. It's just that these are big changes, and these mm. big changes don't tend to be taken seriously.
1: Yeah, and I think that the small things where you know you could intervene on, they are not taken seriously at all. Um, and I think in years to come, we will look at um, misogyny very very differently um and and treat it in in the serious way that it should be treated, you know if you look at things like terrorism, you know that there's been articles written um recently discussing how when you look at the the people that have been convicted of terrorist acts um the vast majority of them have got a history of domestic abuse. So there are real links between um, these kind of hateful behaviours, effectively, that somebody like that will express hate, um, often in a misogynistic way as well. And again, you know, we need to take these these smaller acts much, much more seriously because they can lead to, you know, very, very serious um, incidents later down the line, whether that be rape, murder terrorism what whatever it is um you know we've got to deal with the red flags and not just ignore them or or, you know laugh them off and say well boys will be boys what do you expect all of that kind of thing which allows that behavior to just snowball and um you know they don't come from nowhere Mm.
0: Do you think, do any of these, the cases that you take on, does religion ever play a part? Um, I think one thing I've, one thing I noticed, um, it was a couple of years ago, a lot of the conversations that were happening in um, liberal, no, I I wouldn't say liberal, I would say kind of far left conversations were saying that any criticism of a religion is um, xenophobic, Um, but Mm. I would say that's that can be anti-liberal. I think uh, some religions treat women as second-class citizens and, um, and it's okay to abuse women in the name of religion or it's okay to abuse members of LGBTQ plus communities. Mm. Um, and I think that's where reform needs to happen in religions like this. There needs to be, like it's, it's not, just, you can't just say we can't um, <clears throat> criticize religion. We must, if yeah. it's affecting human rights, we must criticize religion.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I also deal with quite um, a lot of honour-based violence cases as well. Um, and I think sometimes there is a fear of of asking too many questions um, for fear of being seen as racist or, or whatever. Um, but I think more than it being a religious issue, to me it's religion is used as a means of controlling the victim, the woman, whatever situation that is um, and it's not actually when you look at what the religion says that's not certainly um how it, it should be interpreted and i think you know not all members of that religion will act in that way so i think that it's more of a cultural thing than um than a religious um problem but perpetrators will use the religion to justify their behavior um, you know, particularly um, if if they're in a situation where perhaps um, the woman isn't as well educated in relation to the religion as they are, um, they will tell them all sorts of things um, that you know their religion apparently says and why it's okay for them to do that um, and act in that way. Um, but I think you know it's used as a, a tool of oppression more than anything.
0: Mm. So I'd, I'd like to end maybe on some solution-focused um, questions. So I suppose, what, what can men do, do you think? Is, should men be part of the conversation? Should men just purely be listening? What do you think? I think
1: that men um, should be feminist allies and that they have a huge part to play in terms of um, this conversation and changing their behaviour at the end of the day if we're talking about um the abuse of women by men then only men can change that so absolutely they they need to take this seriously on behalf of you know the whole of their their sex and to do much more um in terms of the the smaller things challenging um sexist behavior when they see it you know i'm quite sure every man on earth has heard, you know, some pretty horrendous misogynistic jokes and comments made by their friends. And I'm quite sure in the majority of cases, they haven't challenged their friends over it. They might have thought he's an idiot, but they probably haven't said anything. So that guy then thinks that, oh yeah, everyone laughed at that joke. It's okay. It's fine. And somebody else maybe a bit younger thinks, oh, that's, you know, that, everyone thinks this is funny, this is how I need to act. So I think there are lots and lots of small things that, that, that men can do to change the, the bigger picture. And just, to, I suppose, think about their own behaviour. Um, sometimes it may be that they're not even realising that some of the things they do um, are intimidating women, etc. Um, you know, we all need to think about what we can do to to change things for for the better. But I do think speaking out and not just looking at yourself, but also being prepared to stand up and challenge, and it's quite a difficult thing to do. It's easy for me to say that, um, and I accept that some people will find it more difficult than others, but I think if more men did that, the change would happen much, much faster.
0: Do you have any optimism in this area? I think for me, my optimism comes from with a lot of these, like with sexism and racism is that I, I'd like to hope that it's a, it's generational. I'd like to hope that um, as more generations have these conversations, that this, this sort of behavior dies with um, certain generations. And that's not me generalizing and saying that every generation is racist and that older generations are racist or sexist. But I do believe that with the conversations young people are having now i'd like to think that these conversations will carry on as young people get older and that this sort of behaviour will eventually mm. i don't think it'll ever die out but i'd like to think it becomes a lot less of a problem
1: um i would hope that it that it will but i you know i feel that things are as bad now as they've ever been um and you know, there's not been any reduction in the amount of women that are being killed by their male partners. Um, even though there is more money going into um, domestic abuse services, etc. Even though we've got, you know, all of these extra laws and powers from the police, you know, it's not reducing. Um, so male behaviour isn't changing. Um and actually, you know, in some ways, I think women's positions are under attack more than they have, ever have been. So, you know, I am an optimist and I think I would like to think that in a few generations, things will be better. But I just think at the moment, it, it, things are as bad as ever.
0: So if a woman is listening to this and thinks that they might be experiencing domestic violence domestic abuse where would where would you advise them to go
1: so i would always advise them to to report it to the police um and also and i think this is equally important to also speak to a local domestic abuse charity um in your area who who can offer you some practical advice and also assist you sometimes in reporting it to the police or assist you in, in in circumstances where you feel the police haven't maybe taken it as seriously as you would want to, you know, they, they offer that service for free and can really make a difference in terms of helping you practically and also in terms of, um, you know, all the legalities um, and, and dealing with the police.
0: Mm-hmm. Anyone listening or watching, I will link any local um, charities that they can do in the show notes. Um, but Rachel I want to thank you very much for taking the time I think with these sorts of conversations when I told people this was what I was going to be doing for the next two episodes this was the conversations I was going to have
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, a lot of the response was of very cheery subjects but like in, in my head it's, it's, it's the majority of the subjects that aren't cheery are actually the most mm-hmm. important um, yeah. subjects and I think this is at least a stepping stone is having these sorts of open non-judgmental conversations between men yeah. and women to come to some sort of um, solution. So, yeah, thank you for your time.
1: Thank you so much for covering it. It's really important. And, you know, it's good to hear your views um, about it as a, as a man. And like I say, I don't think we're, um, you know, very different really in in respect of our views for it. So I suppose that that's the positive and that's the optimism that I'll take from it.
0: Well, that's good then. Um, so, <laughs> um, so, yeah, thank you very much for your time and I'll let you get back to it. Um, I appreciate it.
1: No No problem. Thanks a lot. Thank
0: you. And that's the end of episode 22. Like I mentioned at the start, if you are a victim of domestic violence or abuse and need to access help, I've linked some charities below who can help. You can subscribe to the Struggle for Meaning newsletter by going to gregorthompson.com and to stay up to date with everything to do with the podcast, the Struggle for Meaning newsletter and all of my other work, you can follow my social media channels which will all be linked in the show notes and you can watch the podcast on my YouTube channel which is Gregor Thompson, all one word. Stay tuned for episode 23 of the In Context podcast. But for now, take care and I hope you have a productive few weeks.